Well, again, good morning. It is a pleasure to be worshiping with you again this second weekend in Advent. So again, we're looking at what does it mean to prepare for the arrival, the arrival of Jesus. That's really what Advent means. It means arrival. It is a season in which the church takes a look, takes a look at this story from kind of a couple of different perspectives. In fact, we're looking at four words that come from four stories of four different people who were preparing, were preparing for the coming of the Savior. And the reason we're doing this is so that we can have fresh eyes to look at this very familiar story. And one of the things that we learned last week when Pastor Dennis was speaking to us is that Advent is a season for looking both ways. It's when, yes, we look back to the very, very first Christmas and that amazing gift that God gave us of entering into our world, being born a child, growing up to become our Savior, ultimately dying and rising again to give us new life. And he talked a little bit about how um, it's, it, it is something that we look back to and we celebrate, but it's also something we look forward to. Because the truth is, Jesus is going to come again. That's his promise. He says, I will return and make all things new. And so during the Advent season, we look back and we look ahead. And, and last week, we looked ahead. And we looked at the story of Simeon, who is watching, who is watching for the Savior. He had been told that he wouldn't die until he saw the Lord's salvation. And when he encountered the Christ child in the temple, he broke out in worship and in song and in joy. And our encouragement last week was to watch are we watching for the coming of Christ? And this morning, we're going to be looking ahead again, and we're going to be talking about the word prepare. What does it mean to prepare for that coming? But before we do that, I think it's only right that we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message that he has for us this morning. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord, in your word, you say, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so we ask this morning, O oh Lord, that you would make straight paths, make straight paths in our hearts. That this word that we're about to hear would, be, would, would indeed take root. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O oh God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as I said, our word for this week is prepare. And to prepare is simply to get ready. It's simply to get ready uh, for what is coming. And as we said, we're looking kind of both ways. And, and one of the things that's interesting is how you prepare matters. How you prepare matters for helping you uh, understand are you looking forward or are you looking backward? And this word for pre and this, this idea of preparation is one that we're pretty familiar with. We prepare for important events in our lives. We prepare for our day. We prepare to go for work. And at Christmas season, there's a lot of preparations that go on. I don't know about you guys, but like in my household, like preparing for Christmas is a big deal, but it's also an ordeal. Like, ever since I was a kid, it was a big deal and also an ordeal, and it, and it never, never fails to amaze me just how hard preparation can actually be. I mean, and it, and it always happens right around Thanksgiving, you know, and it's the day after Thanksgiving. It's the day when I just want to recover, okay? I've eaten all this turkey. I've eaten all this food. And the next day, it's a day off. I don't have to go to work. I want to sit around in my pajamas and just relax. And I thought that this year might be the first year. The first year where that would actually happen, how naive I was. Because I woke up and we had a great breakfast and we're all sitting around in our PJs and I'm about to kick back with my cup of coffee and my wife says, honey, you need to help me move the furniture. 
and I knew that Christmas preparations had arrived. It's a big deal. It's also an ordeal. And I don't know about you guys what Christmas preparations are like in your house, but this is, this is kind of how it goes in my house. How are we going to get the star on top? I got it. Okay, I would take a cat over that. <laughs> but this is kind of how it goes. It's a little nuts in my house. I mean, you got little kids who want to put ornaments on trees. You know, you got mom and dad trying to get the trees set up and to keep them away from the breakable stuff and still give them the stuff that they can actually play with and touch. And before we know it, like, our house is just a whirl with all kinds of, of activity. And sometimes it's a mess and sometimes it's not. It's a big deal, but it's also an ordeal. And the one thing that, I've always, that always bugs me about Christmas preparations is lights, okay? I don't know how this happens, but I feel like every year we take the lights off the house we take them off the tree, we coil them appropriately, we even have little Velcro strips to keep them nicely coiled, we stick them in a Tupperware box, a box that will not be touched until next year, a box that goes on a shelf up high in the garage where no one will see it. And then the time comes to get those lights out and this is what happens. How do lights do that? It's this ball of insane yarn, and now you're, you have to unravel them, and then once you unravel them, like half of them work, right? And the other half don't. But then if, if you've gotten through that kind of preparation, we then endanger our lives by climbing up onto ladders and trying to string these lights up on our house just so that our homes look something like this, so that we can all stand on our front lawn and do this, you know? Preparation is big work. Preparation is hard. Preparation is exhausting. And yet we're being told in this passage to prepare. Prepare. Get ready. And like I said, it's, it's often about looking both ways. And how you prepare reveals a lot about which direction you're looking. And I think a lot of the preparation that we do at Christmas time, all this stuff with the lights and, and the ornaments and the trees, is because we're looking back. We're looking back to the, to the first Christmas, and we want to remember it, and we want to honor it. So we put up these things as a way of reminding ourselves about why we celebrate this season. But when John the Baptist came and he said, prepare, when this word that we get from the book of Isaiah says, talks about preparation, it's not talking about a backward kind of preparation. It's talking about a forward preparation. It's talking about being prepared to meet with your God. And that's really the question we're asking this morning is, are we prepared to meet God? That's really what John the Baptist was all about. That's what he was doing. And so this morning, I want to invite you to open with me to Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, if you have your Bibles with you. And Mark's gospel begins with these words. It says, The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. You see, when Mark begins, he's, he quotes from an Old Testament book, the book of Isaiah, this book that was written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before John the Baptist had ever shown up. 
And he uses a very common imagery, and it was imagery of when a king is about to arrive in your city. And when a king was about to arrive to make a royal visit, it was incumbent upon the the people in that town, the people in that village, the people in that city, to prepare his way ahead of him. And they would do things like they would build a royal highway. They would, they would level out the elevation. They would smooth the rough places so that the king could come into the city with ease. And this imagery that Isaiah had was then kind of picked up by the Jewish people as they thought about what it meant to prepare for the coming of the Lord, for the day when God himself would come and rule as king. For them, preparation was a big deal, but it was also an ordeal because it involved a lot of external work. And it often took place in Jerusalem at the temple. And this is the place where people would would sit and they would pray and they would light incense and they would burn candles and they they would offer up sacrifices to God where they would read the scriptures and then look at their lives and think about all the things that they had to do to get ready. And it was this exhausting ordeal. It was a big deal, but it was an ordeal. This idea of preparation. And yet Mark, Mark picks up this language, but then he Then he takes this notion of preparation and he kind of flips it on its head in a very surprising way because he goes on to say, and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And again, if you were a first century reader of that story, this would be surprising because where we find John is we don't find him in Jerusalem. We don't find him at the temple. We don't find him doing all of these external things, these rituals and customs and stylized prayers and wearing the right kind of clothing. We don't see any of that in John. What we see is he says preparation is about baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see, what John is telling us is that he's saying preparation is primarily something that has to go on in the heart. That when it comes to meeting your God, what matters most is, is your heart ready to receive him? Is your heart ready to receive him? See, John says it's more more important than all that external stuff is the condition of your soul. Are you prepared this day to meet your God? That's the question. That's what it really means to prepare, to look forward to the coming of the Lord. Now, we have a hard time with this word repentance in our culture today because we are increasingly a post-churched culture post-Christian culture. Uh, there are more and more people who would say that they, that when they're asked what their religious or spiritual preference is, they, they mark down none. I don't have one. And when it comes to words like repent and repentance and forgiveness of sins, we tend to kind of recoil. It's because we have these images in our heads of judgmental people standing on street corners screaming at us while waving signs about all the things that God hates. And we hear them yell words like repent and sinner. And we recoil from that. We're like, I'm just, I'm not interested in any of that. Which is why I think what we have to do is we have to kind of put our cultural baggage aside for a moment and ask ourselves the question, what did repentance mean in John's day? That when he was calling people to repentance, what was he talking about? 
You see, the word in the Greek for repentance is metanoia. It means a, a change of mind, a change of attitude, a change of direction. It's a change of some kind. It's a turning from one way of thinking or living or being to something else. And so when John talked about repentance in relationship with God, he says there needs to be a change in your mind. There needs to be something that changes in how you think. That to repent means to agree with God about who he is and about who he says I am. That when it comes to God and repentance, to repent is to agree with God about who he is and about who I am. And this passage from Isaiah gives us three images of what that repentance looks like in our lives. Three images, three illustrations of what that repentance looks like in our lives. So I want to go ahead and read that passage again from Isaiah 40. Here's what it says. It says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. And as we read that, we get three images of what repentance actually looks like. And the images are that mountains will be brought low, valleys will be raised up, and rough places will be made smooth. And so as we think about preparation and repentance, I want to look at each of, these, um, uh, each of these images in turn because I think they help us really understand what it means to agree with God about who he is and about who he says I am. The first image is the image of the mountains being made low, every mountain and hill being made low. Now when we talk about the heart, we talk about mountains being made low in the heart. What are we talking about? Well, we see a picture of this in John's own ministry. People are coming out of Jerusalem to him to be baptized. And as the crowds are gathering and they're being baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, we read that the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees also come out to him. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these were the religious elite of John's day. These were the people who knew all those rites and rituals and prayers. These were the ones who were busy with all that activity in the temple. These were the ones who were busy in the synagogues teaching the faith. These were the guys who they had it all together, apparently. At least according to religious standards of the day, these were the best of the best. And they come out to John, and John has hard words for them. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? It's like, whoa, what is, what's up, John? Why, why this attitude? But the answer is, is because John is bringing mountains down. He's making high places low. He's humbling what is lofty. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees believed that they had everything together. They believed that they were perfect. They believed that they were keeping the law well. And they held other people to that high standard. And what we see there is the repentance that they need is they need to get with God. Uh, they need to be on the same page with God about who he says they are. Because they have a good perspective of who God is. They know that God is holy, that he's the creator of the universe, that he's going to come in holiness and in perfection, and he's going to judge the earth. 
They've got that right about God, but what they have wrong is who they are in his eyes. Because the truth is, is that none of us is perfect in God's eyes. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were people who said, yeah, God is going to come in judgment, but when he does, I'm going to be okay. In fact, I'm going to be in the stands watching the judgment play out against all these other people who don't quite have it right. They believed that they were good enough. That when God came again, they'd be like, well, yeah, I'm pretty good because I'm not as bad as fill in the blank. And John comes to them and he says, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? You see, their problem was self-righteousness. They believed that they were perfect. That they stood on high spiritual planes with God. That they stood on the mountaintop. That they were the best of the best. And the problem with self-righteousness is, is manifold. There are a couple of problems with self-righteousness. First is, self-righteousness makes you judgmental. It causes you to look down on other people. People who seem to be struggling with things that you don't struggle with. Looks down on them and says, you know, they're just not living up to God's standards. They just don't have their life together. I mean, at least I'm not like them, right? I've got my stuff together. I know what the right thing to do is and I do it time and time and time again. And it breeds this kind of self-righteous and judgmental attitude. It prevents us from being compassionate toward those who are struggling. Struggling with the mistakes that they've made. Struggling with the hard stuff that's going on in their lives. It prevents us from being compassionate in the way that God would call us to be compassionate. But there's another problem with self-righteousness. And it's a failure to diagnose a very serious condition. Because the truth is, is that the standard by which all of us is measured is God himself. When people say, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm good enough. I'm good enough to get in. I have to ask them, by what bar are you measuring good? Because the bar that God gives in scripture when he speaks to Moses on Mount Sinai and gives Moses all the Old Testament laws is he says, you are to be holy as I am holy. And likewise, later on, one of Jesus' own followers, the apostle Peter, goes back to that passage in, in, P, in 1 Peter. And he says that we, as God's people, are to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. See, over and over again, the bar that scripture says we're measured by is God himself. We were made in God's image. Therefore, he is the standard to which we aspire. And that's the problem. Because before God, none of us is perfect. None of us measures up. And a self-righteous attitude blinds us to our need. We have a terminal condition which leads to death. It's called sin and it needs to be dealt with. And so John is warning. He's warning the self-righteous. He's bringing the high low and saying you need to be humbled. You need to see your condition that you are a sinner desperately in need of forgiveness. There's another image that we get in this passage. It's the image of the valleys being raised up. It says that the valleys will be raised up. What, is, what does that mean in terms of the human heart? Well, I think it means that, that those people who think that they're outside are now brought in. Here's another beautiful example from John's own ministry. It says that when people were coming out to receive this baptism of forgiveness, that, that among those people were tax collectors. 
And this is a really big deal in those days because tax collectors were seen as traitors. See, the Roman Empire had conquered the entire Mediterranean world, and that included Judea. And tax collectors were Jewish people who were employed by the Romans to take taxes from their fellow Jews. Furthermore, the only way that a tax collector made income was by skimming off the top, and the Romans would often look the other way. They'd say, hey, as long as we get our taxes, we don't care what you take. And so they were seen as outside the people of God. Tax collectors were not welcome in synagogues. They were not welcome in the temple. They were outside all those religious assemblies and festivals and things like that. But when they hear that there is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, they start flocking to John and asking, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? The valleys have to be raised up. Because here, too, there's a kind of repentance that needs to take place in the heart. And it's epitomized by this great quote from Winston Churchill. I love this quote. Winston Churchill said, I am ready to meet my maker. Now, whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter entirely. But this is what I would say is low, this is valley thinking when it comes to our heart. It basically says, I agree with God that I'm a sinner. I, am, I agree with God that I'm not perfect, but it misses something important about the character of God. It misses something vitally important about the character of God. And you know that you've got valley thinking when you hear people saying things like, you know, I can't go to church because if I were to walk through those doors, I'd get struck by lightning. Or God doesn't want to have anything to do with me because of all the mistakes that I've made. How could he ever forgive me? If people were, if I were really honest and I told people everything that was going on in my life, they wouldn't want it to have anything to do with me and I don't even know if God cares. That's valley thinking. It's the belief that I am so far gone that God can't possibly reach me. And the repentance that needs to take place here is helping people to see that God, yes, is a holy and perfect judge, but he's also a loving father. That while we come to him and we might say, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy of your love, God says, I give it to you anyways. I love you anyways. Because I'm your dad. It's what a good dad does, right? When, when, when we mess up as kids, right? You know, we know that we messed up. We know that there are consequences, but our, our fathers still say, I still love you. And nothing that you ever do can change that love. See, God knew you before you were made. He saw all the days of your life before he ever created you and he still decided to make you you. And more than that, he knew all the mistakes that you would make, all the, all the ways that you would fall short, and he still came, he still chose to come into this world and to die for you to forgive you. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you wrestle with that, how does God really feel about me? Would he want to have anything to do with me? The answer is yes, he does. He is a God of love. He is your heavenly father who wants you to know that you are forgiven and that you can have a new relationship with him. It's the second kind of repentance, second image of repentance that we get. It's the third image of repentance that we get from Isaiah 40. And it's this image of the rough ground becoming level, the rugged places being made a plain. Okay, and then when we think about that one and we think about this statement, agreeing with God about who he is and about who I am, well, which part do we, are we getting wrong? Well, the whole thing kind of turns pink. The question is, why? Well, because the reality is, is that even if you choose to follow God and you're walking with Jesus, there are still going to be rough places in your life. There are still going to be sins that you struggle with, times when you fall short, doubts that creep in that God has to work on. 
And so we get it partially. But we're in this process, this lifelong journey of more and more fully seeing who God is and more and more seeing myself and others through his eyes. We see this kind of incomplete work going on in John's own life. See, later on, John, with all of his preaching and baptizing, he does run afoul of the authorities. And at one point, he, he actually gets into trouble with King Herod, and Herod ends up throwing him in prison. And while he's in prison, he starts hearing about the things that Jesus is doing. That Jesus is walking around and preaching about the kingdom of God. That he's healing those who are sick. That he's raising people from the dead. He's, that, that the blind see and the lame walk. All the stuff he would have hoped to hear a Savior doing. But the other thing he hoped that a Savior would do would come and punish the evil rulers. Punish the wicked. And here John is and he's stuck in prison. Thrown in there by a wicked king and he starts to have some doubts. And so he sends two of his disciples to Jesus. And he sends them and he says with the question, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? You see, John's circumstances in life are causing him to doubt. To doubt the Messiah. To doubt Jesus. To wonder, are you really the one? There's some rough patches in his life that God still needs to smooth out. And we all struggle with them. There are moments, seasons in life when we wrestle with doubts. There's seasons in life when we fall short, when we make mistakes, when we mess up. And in those moments, we wonder, well, how does God feel about me now? And the answer we get, again, in this amazing passage from Mark chapter 1, because notice how the book of Mark begins. It begins with the words, in the, be the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. See, the answer that Mark's gospel gives us when we encounter those rough places, when we find ourselves in those valley moments, is he says the answer that you need uh, in order to know how God feels about you and how he sees you is you need only look at Jesus. Jesus brings good news. Because when we look at the life of Jesus, what we see is a God who, yes, though he is holy and though he is perfect, still chooses to enter into our dark world. A God who, yes, is the judge of all the universe, but who's willing to take that judgment onto his own shoulders in order to forgive us. That Jesus, out of his great love for us, enters into our world to walk with us, to forgive us, to die for us, and to rise again and give us the gift of eternal life so that we can know that our God is holy and loving. And that we, yes, though we are sinners, are also forgiven and beloved children. The answer Mark's gospel gives, he says, look to Christ if you want to know how God feels about you because when you look at Jesus, you see God's love and holiness brought together on the cross. You see God's presence that's willing to walk with you through every season. You see God's arm that can reach you even in your lowest moments. That's a gift that God gives us. And that's really what it means to prepare to go back, to have a change of mind, to agree with God about who he is and who he says I am. And so this Advent season, we want to encourage you to take time with God, to sit with God, 
to spend time in self-examination and reflection, in repentance, saying, Lord, where has my picture of you gone all wrong? Or Lord, where are those blind spots in my life that you want to deal with? Or Lord, how are, you, how are you bearing me up in these difficult moments? Take time and allow God to do the work. Take moments this Advent season to sit with him and to speak with him, to again read the stories and to know of his love. We're encouraging you to take it home with you. One of the things that we've done is that we've created Advent devotions, one devotion per day of the week that you can take with you. That as you leave here, you can grab our Take It Home guide and do those Advent devotions at home because as you do, what you are going to see is you're going to see Emmanuel, God with us. You're going to see the God who is holy, but also loving. The God who is just, and yet provides forgiveness. And my prayer is that as you see God for who he is, and as you see yourself and others through his eyes, you will be able to bring that good news of Jesus Christ to others. And so it's to that end that I'd like to invite you to bow your heads and pray with me. Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks that when it comes to preparation, you do the work. You prepare a way in our hearts. You invite us to simply come and spend time with you. And so, Lord, we pray that this week we would take time to be with you. That we would hear from your word, hear who you really are and how you see us. That we would know you as both holy and loving. That we would see ourselves as, yes, sinners, but also forgiven children of God. And that through that, we would know that there's nothing that can ever separate us from your love. That as we look forward to your coming again, we would know that we have good news to give and good news to share with a world that desperately needs to hear it. We pray all this in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.